a neo-distributist approach to politics with cooperatives, localized civic renewal, and other policies that do not fit neatly in any of the current political boxes. He offers a critique across the board of the centralized state, big business, banking, and the unregulated free market. He's called for a renewal of morality in the market and the institutions of society. British Prime Minister David Cameron's Big Society is an attempt to try those ideas in the laboratory of a real country. Today, as I was thinking about the talk tonight, um, I have been contemplating the moment in history that we occupy. Being a historian, uh, the moment in history always seems to be um, critical to me. And I think from time to time, the political climate reaches a point where enough people think something is wrong that there is a temptation or a desire or a hope that maybe, indeed, we can make the world new. It doesn't always work out well, but we can imagine. And I was thinking and talking to someone the other day, and I said, we're in an election cycle that seems particularly fraught. And I don't know whether it's the election of 1848, the election of 1860, 1896, or 1968, but it feels to me, and I could be wrong, but it feels to me like times are changing and apologies to my IAH students who are going to have to hear that uh, sometime later this week in the lecture, the Bob Dylan version. But the time seems to have come for a new set of ideas, and um, I'm happy to have Philip Blong with us tonight to introduce a new set of ideas. Philip, Thank welcome. You very much. There's a great danger in being associated with a new set of ideas because the minute you introduce them, people say, I always thought that, we're doing that. <laughs> you're attending some sort of year zero and then you're, you're condemned to a certain sort of fate. But I think, I think uh, and I completely agree, we are in a, a new situation. There's a time in politics where everything shifts, so the tectonic plates move. And I think in, in my country that happened in 1945 when the state nationalised society. It happened also in the 1970s, both in my country and yours. And I think we're in a similar paradigm and uh, it's shifting and nobody's quite sure where it's going to. And in America you have uh, politics fleeing to the extreme. So on the left you have uh, Occupy Wall Street, on the right you have the Tea Party. And yet the mainstream is remaining squarely within standard um, retail box offer politics, while the rest of the world is, is going somewhere else. And I think that's where we are. So what I'd like to offer you tonight is my account of where we are, uh, what's gone wrong, and then I think together we might discuss um, how we can fix it. So what I want to do is I'll do the philosophy first because I know that's what puts most people off so I'll, I'll get over it and um, then we can proceed from there. What I want to suggest to you is that uh, since really after the Second World War we've had the same project being delivered by two separate parties. 
that actually the left and the right, though we like to think of them as opposed, as oppositional, as offering us fundamentally different solutions, has in fact offered us the same solution. And what we've been offered, whether we realise it or not, is a form of liberalism. Now, I'm quite critical of the form of liberalism that we've been offered, but that doesn't make me illiberal. What I simply think is you cannot have liberalism as first philosophy. When I use the word liberal, I don't use them in the way uh, that uh, it's commonly taken in, in America to mean on the left and uh, in some sense an endorsement of something contemporary. What I want to suggest to you is largely it, it makes sense to say that we followed um, both collectivism and individualism. And that really has been the oscillation between left and right of politics and politics. And this form of oscillation from left and right isn't anything other than liberalism. But it's liberalism in quite a radical form. And it's the radical form first, I think, fully encapsulated by Rousseau. And Rousseau, who, as you will know, is a French, uh, Swiss origin, French revolutionary thinker. And what Rousseau did is he bequeathed to the left two ideas that I think have haunted the West ever since. And that is extreme individualism and extreme collectivism. And what I want to suggest to you in this uh, first slide is that really individualism is a left-wing notion. It's not right-wing, it's left-wing. It's left-wing in origin and practice. And its take-up by the right has been disastrous to any properly figured conservative cause or form of thinking. Now what's interesting about Rousseau, because he was a pr profoundly clever man, is um, coming uh, out of the social contract tradition. And like those, he argued that human beings are first of all sort of born in a state of nature. But that state of nature that human beings are born in is almost wholly of their own creation. They're authentic wild beasts, these human creatures. For them, they are self-creating, self-authoring creatures. When they meet society, society puts chains on them. You know the phrase, man is everywhere born free, and yes, is in chains. And the chains that society puts on them is the imposition of something other than yourself on yourself. <coughs> now, Rousseau also knew, obviously, that human beings existed beside the first human being upon which he based his political anthropology. So how do you as a thinker who believes most profoundly in a form of kind of state of nature individualism, how do you then deal with the reality of other people and other minds? Well, the simple liberal move is to say all people are like me. And indeed, that's what Rousseau argued through the notion of the general will. All other people are like me. But of course, the other people who are like me are exactly like me. They represent my better, uh, my better sovereign half. They represent me and my true rationality rather than driven by my animal spirit and my more embodied nature. And so Rousseau then, coupled with this extreme form of individualism that somehow created itself before anything else, Rousseau then said, well, what we actually have is the collective will. The collective will is that which can force me to be free. Through collectivism, I can better express my own individuality. And there in one thinker, which is why it matters and why it's important, you have the two modern legacies that govern our left and right, extreme individualism and extreme statism, or extreme collectivism. Now that legacy passed through Bentham, it passed through Marx, 
and it entered this dominant left-wing paradigm. And the left-wing paradigm, I would argue, since Marx has been the state will make you free. The state will create the conditions for your autonomy. The state will free you from ties of place, from ties of locality, from all forms of mutuality. The state will create autonomy for you. Now, in my country in 1945, when they set up the welfare state, and I'm not necessarily opposed to the welfare state, but I'm certainly opposed to the form it took, is that for the first time in modern political anthropology, you created the first form of individual. And that individual is the bearer of one-way entitlement rights. That individual is the person who has rights against the state without any reciprocity, who has to do nothing in order to get something. And that form of post-war claim rights, or one-way entitlement rights, then morphs into the 1960s, into the tune-in, turn-on, drop-out generation. The people who read Marcuse and R.D. Lang, the people who felt that these one-way entitlement rights not only applied to their physical welfare, but their spiritual, their mental, and their sexual lives. And then oddly, the state, from a form of collectivism conceived to set us free, created human beings who repudiated family, repudiated relationship, repudiated all horizontal ties, since they thought that any social structure was an original act of repression upon a more primordial and artistic form of expression. And what that means, and you, see, you saw it in America as well, with your 68ers, and you certainly saw it in Europe with theirs. What that means is the first cogent, potent political form of individualism was on the left. And it was on the left because it was also created by collectivity. So you sort of have an inverse version of Rousseau. Now what I think is interesting, and what I want to argue, is it's those sort of people that then created the economics of the right in the 1970s. It's those sort of people who created not only a, a zone in which their sexual lives could, have, could take place without limit, but also their economic lives. And that form of individualism then transmuted from left to right. And we were left in the West with an opposition between a statist left and an individualist right in the economic sphere that thought it was opposing the state. And this is what I want to argue, and what I want to suggest to you, is they're not opposed at all. This form of left needs that form of right, and that form of right needs this form of left. Simply put, I want to suggest to you that individualism, in its extreme variant, leads to collectivism, and collectivism, in its extreme variant, leads to individualism. I don't know if any of you have ever visited Eastern Europe, but, or Ukraine, or Moldova, or even actually for that matter Romania or Bulgaria, or certainly Russia. Post-communist states are profoundly interesting, because communism was created to make us love one another. And when you go to these states, you've never seen less love between people in your life. People are prostituted, people sell each other, criminals rule everything. Criminalisation of Eastern Europe, the gangsterism, the sheer unmitigated self-interest deployed by those who advance themselves as putative leaders is indeed the outcome of collectivism. And by the same token, in societies that pretend to support the individual, like mine and like this country, 
What actually happens is you create a society where only where that's profoundly dictated by the idea of possessive and aggressive individualism. That creates a society and an economy where only the top wins. If you have a zero-sum game between individuals, only a few individuals will win. Everybody else will be impoverished, rendered destitute, and will need welfare and the state in order to let them pick up the pieces. So what I want to suggest to you is that this left-right opposition isn't an opposition at all. Because the orthodox left and the orthodox right have both produced the same phenomenon which is massive concentration of wealth and power, increasing destitution, impoverishment, and a stripping away of agency and potency for an increasing number of the population. And what I want to suggest to you tonight is that's the real politics. And the real politics is how the old left and the old right have stripped capital, power, sociality, democracy even, an agency away from an increasing number of people. So much so that I would argue we're now approaching a new era of serfdom. Those of you who read political economy will know Hayek's road to serfdom. I believe we've actually trod that road and we're perilously close to it. We're creating a deeply insecure populace, both in my country and yours, that's increasingly dependent upon the state because wages no longer deliver. Anyway, more of this anon. We're not even past the first slide, so you must all be terrified. <laughs> and you're right to be. Um, I think that's enough philosophy for now. But let me conclude that actually, the type of world we're in is we're pursuing collectivism through the state and individualism through the market. But they're the same. They result in the same, and their origin is the same. And it's a form of aggressive left wing in the sense of revolutionary liberalism that aborts all prior traditions. So let's see what it results in. What I want to suggest is there's almost three problems that the dominant form of politics that we practiced on left and right have created. First of all, a social problem. Now, one of the remarkable things about the West uh, is that we progressively destroyed and eroded all of the foundational structures that matter to us. Family, sociality, connection, human interaction, and the associations and structures thereof. Across the West, particularly in America, particularly in Britain, people have got lonelier, people got more isolated, people are increasingly only associating with people like themselves. The phrase I like is that we live in a society of ever-decreasing circles. More and more of us know less and less of people who are unlike us. And this goes from universities to nightclubs to where we eat, to where we drive, to where we exercise. What this results in is an erosion of all of the traditional structures whereby those who used to have power and agency express themselves. Because actually, if you're a lonely individual, the last thing you can resist is the state, let alone anything else. And we can only express power through intermediate associations, through groups, through people of like mind coming together to create and make a difference. That's the social side. The other side is the economic. 
And the economic is almost even more interesting. Because <clears throat> what's happened in our economy is we've created, under the rhetoric of free markets, under the rhetoric of entrepreneurship, massive, massive concentration of market share, of asset wealth. And we've created oligopoly, and in some cases even monopoly, in the name of liberalism and market freedom. One of the ways in which this is most expressed is the fact that we've created a welfare state that focuses only on income. So in the 1920s and 1930s, when those on the left, particularly Keynes, created the welfare state, they never challenged the monopoly control of capitalism. They said, actually, we're not going to challenge ownership and elite ownership of wealth. What we're going to do is, is tax it, tax its transactions, and use those assets and wealth to do income supplements for people. But the trouble with a society based on income supplements as a means of maintaining standard of living is it can never catch up with the real source of wealth because the real source of wealth is assets, property and possession. The British government in 2010, before it lost office, did a survey of inequality and it compared the bottom decile and the top decile. And if you looked at income, you can see that the redistributive state achieved something. Ratio between the bottom 10% and the top 10% were between 4 and 8, depending how you define the household. But when you included assets, the ratio was over 100 to 1. And it's assets that are a true source of wealth and the real driver of inequality. But nothing about our welfare system does anything to address the asset gap about which more later. So to conclude, what I want to suggest to you, and this is only the second slide, is that power has concentrated in the state. That the state, instead of being an agency of genuine democratic power, is an agency that has centralized power. One way to understand this is the way in which representational democracy has destroyed participative democracy. And not only has representational democracy destroyed participative democracy, but the proxy representatives you elect are more terrified and more open to manipulation by big money than they are by you. Through being in Washington and speaking to politicians, the thing they're really terrified of is the people who come into primaries and throw millions of dollars into, in, into taking them out. And actually, your political system is the most open to corruption by money that I've seen in the developed world. It's remarkable that your Supreme Court has let this happen. But that's probably because your competition authorities and your competition law has been completely inoperative. Massive concentration of power in the market, massive decapitalization of the rest of you. Let's go back to the first problem. In Britain, so you just don't think this is about the US, 97% of communities have become more socially fragmented after the, over the last three decades. In a survey, the weakest communities in the 1970s are stronger than our strongest communities today. Social trust has almost halved over the last 40 years. And these trends are very present in America as well. 
as I think has been uh, very well shown by Putnam's now famous thesis about the destruction of the intermediate associations of Americans. Here you can see the decline in social trust in, in adults and teenagers from 1960 to 1999. Really quite precipitate. What's interesting is the more you tr lose trust, the more you lose the inability to think about, curve, or even create possibilities with your neighbour, with your community, and with other people across your nation. Allied with this is the decline in social visiting, popping out to see friends, neighbours, having coffee with them. Decline also in community involvement. Again from the 70s, you see steep decline. What's interesting is it, is it steepens here, within the last 20 years. More and more people are getting less involved, seeing less people, trusting people less. Now, you might think, well, so what? But what's interesting, if you look at something like the family, in Britain, for example, we're almost approaching a situation where 50% of children are born outside of marriage. You might think, well, that doesn't matter, choice, freedom, it's fine, <coughs> everything's good. But actually, it does matter, and it matters because the life chances of children born to cohabiting parents are much, much worse than for those whose parents are married. Why? Because, the, and this is for the OECD, this isn't just for the UK, this is for the OECD. By the time a child is five, if they're born to parents who aren't married, 43% of those relationships have broken up. So by the time a, a child is five, nearly half of the relationships that that child is born into have ended. And in effect, they become a one-parent family. For married couples, that figure is 8%. So already you see a remarkable difference for the life experience of children. You might say, well, it doesn't matter. One parent families, it, you know, I know many good one parent families, as do I. I think one parent families, in many ways, particularly, are deeply noble and people are doing wonderful things in very, very difficult circumstances. But that shouldn't blind us to the outcome. We know that the outcome for children of one parent families are negative in almost every single data set you can mention. It's even just as negative if the, per if the children haven't experienced the divorce. You see they're more likely to fall into substance abuse, alcohol, mental health problems, criminality, and imprisonment. Worse outcomes in terms of income, in terms of jobs, in terms of educational achievement. We shouldn't be surprised. The family is foundational. And why are we surprised if those who are denied that suffer as a consequence. But what's, I think, illustrative of this is if this, this is the percentage of families below the poverty line. This is for single mothers with children under 18. It's around 45% of them just dropping and then rising are below the poverty line. Against single fathers, which is almost half, and against married couples, which is less than 10%. 
So I think it's a very stark. I'm not trying to argue causation or correlation. I believe in evidence-informed policy, not policy-led evidence-making or evidence-led policy-making. I think that gives you an indication. Let me turn to what I think is the most telling slide. All of you want good jobs, some of you have them, those that don't want them. The frightening thing is, even if you get a job, it's not necessarily going to deliver for you. This line here is GDP. This is the GDP case since the mid-70s. Look how precipitately it's rising. Look how big the cake is growing. Remarkable. Well, if trickle-down theory works, if the idea that, you know, if we grow the whole, we'll get a bigger part works, then we shouldn't see this. This is median wages for males falling since the mid-1970s. This is median wages for all workers, male or female. Lower, just, or stagnating since the 1970s. This is the entry of women into the workforce. Rising, but not markedly so. What does that graph tell you? That graph tells you that wages, what you earn, is getting less and less of more and more. That's remarkable. The highest return to wage labour was in 1968. Ever since then, it's been falling or stagnating. And then if you're in the bottom deciles and you're male, it's even worse. Then GDP's going like that, and your wages are going like that. So if wages aren't delivering, if wages are giving you less and less and more and more, what are the consequences of that? Well, quite marked. This is earnings inequality and mobility uh, in the United States. And you can see how quick, this is 1970 again, where the other graph commenced. And you can see an enormous rise in inequality for men, women, and all workers. Now, I don't believe in equality. I'm not an egalitarian. I believe in equity. But nonetheless, I think that the rise in inequality testifies to something else. It testifies, in my view, not to the emergence of class, but, as we'll go on, I think to the emergence of caste, which I think is becoming an increasing reality, particularly in my country and in yours. So what is the economic problem in the United States? Concentrating assets, rising debt and poverty and stagnant mobility. Very quickly, the top 20% of Americans hold nearly 85% of total wealth. 15.1% of Americans live in poverty. The highest since 1993 and higher than any point during the 70s. <coughs> Finally, 61% of young Americans in the bottom 25% of income will stay there. Let me show you some more on each of these three points. This is very interesting. This is from a study done in 2010 on psychology and outcome. Now, a lot of the time when I present these figures to American audience, people don't believe them. 
They don't believe they say, no, it's not true, I'm my family, I've done well, I know other people who've done well. And I think that's a sign of the narrow groups we now associate it. Okay, this top bar is the actual distribution of wealth. This is the top 25%. Sorry, the top 20%, 85%. This is the next, this is the top 40% of Americans own about 95% of the wealth. The next middle 20% own the rest, and the bottom 40% of Americans aren't even on the graph. That means they own virtually nothing. 40%, that's quite a big number. Against that, here is what Americans thought was the income distribution. They put the share of wealth going to the top 20%, the mid-50s to the top 40% of the mid-70s. The interesting thing is what they thought was ideal. And again, you can see that most people don't believe in equality. They believe people should be rewarded for making a difference. People should be rewarded more. So you've got a 55% difference between what most Americans think should be the case and what is the case. And that's why I think we're in a completely different political and socio-economic world. What do you think ought to be the case and what is a very, very different? That's the graph of poverty level. I never think they're particularly um, disclosive because it doesn't show you asset wealth. This is income wealth. Um, and this is measured on income because... Um, that's how poverty is measured. But for assets, it's even more extreme. Now, one of the things that those factors create is a massive need and desire by ordinary people to generate capital, to get an asset effect, as I call it. Now, this is from 1999. It's only the last 10 years. And this is the composition of US household debt. And these figures... I think they're a vague sort of orange, is US mortgages. So desperate have people be to create assets and wealth for themselves because wages won't deliver. People piled in to mortgages and housing because then at least they could create something for themselves. But this is what's interesting. This is also federal debt as a percentage of GDP. And you see the greatest rise there during both Democratic and Republican administrations. And I think this is another example. I'll just go back again and you can see the relationship. Last 10 years. And then government debt. Is everyone tries to pretend that we've lived under different politics, but we haven't. Both Republicans and Democrats have both been Keynesian. They've only differed in the vehicle that's delivered government stimulation or economic stimulation via debt. We've had privatised Keynesianism using households and then we've had it driven by the government to both bail that out and increase it when households can't deliver. So whether, whatever you think about the recent history of our political economy, I would argue that it's largely been Keynesian. And the fact is no one else can bear any more debt burden. It's not clear to me that any other stimulation will deliver 
the type of economy that we all want. Now remember the other elements where I talked about social mobility. This is from uh, the Pew Economic Mobility Project. Now you can't quite see it, so apologies for that. This is intra-generational, so that's your generation. 61% of Americans in the bottom uh, quarter of the economic distribution will remain there. 63% of Americans in the top will remain there. Now Americans like to think, <clears throat> as the people in my country, that they're in a society where you can get ahead, where you can make a difference, where you can create the outcome that works for you. Actually, the worst places to be if you want to get ahead are in the United Kingdom or in America. There they have the highest correlation between parental income and your own income. The OECD did a survey in 2010 of social mobility. The UK was the worst, followed by Italy. There are reasons for that we can discuss another time. And the United States was third. The best predictor in my country and yours of your outcome is your postcode or your zip code where you're born. It's the single most reliable indicator of everything. And these are the countries where we've had 20, 30 years of endless rhetoric about getting ahead and entrepreneurship that transforms outcomes. <clears throat> so, to conclude this section, what's actually happened is that the wealthiest part of society has seized almost the majority of the wealth. The wealthiest half of households own 91% of the UK's total wealth. For Americans, I think it's about 95%. No, it's the wealthiest 40%, I think, own about 95%. The bottom figure is really interesting. In um, 1976, the Office for National Statistics did a survey of liquid capital for the bottom for people in the United Kingdom. And they found that the bottom 50% uh, had 12% of the liquid capital, that's shares, that's cash, that's what you, you can use to start a business, fund your education, transform your life. By 2003, the bottom 50% had lost their 12% share and just had 1% share. Now I think, and I believe in popular capitalism, but you can't have a popular capitalism if the bottom half of your population doesn't have capital. What you actually have is a new surf population. Now this excludes entitlement, <coughs> but as I said, the entitlement income graph I don't think is indicative. That's the increase in the UK of the wealthiest half. Now, I believe, as I've said, in popular capitalism, I believe in business ownership, I don't believe that the left can save the poor from their lot. That was good. I don't, I don't believe that the state can stop you from being poor. But what's interesting is the right promised mass prosperity and hasn't delivered either. Why is that? I want to argue in this section that actually 
we've created monopoly and oligopoly out of, out of our market. And that's part of the reason we've got the massive asset capture that we're talking about. Let me give you some figures. Remember when the US back uh, almost a year ago now looked like it was coming out of the recession? One of the interesting indicators is that corporations captured 88% of all post-recession growth. Aggregate wages and salaries only counted for 1%. Now what's also interesting is it's taking longer and longer for post-recession recoveries to kick in. Back in 1970, in terms of employment, it just took six months. 1985, 1982-12, 2001, 38. And we're still not at the end of the current situation. Now why is that? Now it's going to be multifactorial, all events are. It is something to do with new technology, it is something to do with skill levels, but it's also something to do with the destruction of your small and medium-sized businesses. It is also something to do with the increasing capture of market share by oligopolies or indeed by monopolies. Let me give you some figures. This is market share of the four largest firms in selected retail industries, 1992 to 2007. So these are your four largest players. What market share? Well, food and beverages more or less doubled um, in, in under 20 years. Health and personal care scores, market share of the dominant players more or less doubled. General merchandise, now it's up to three quarters. Supermarkets, more or less, not quite doubled. Bookstores, really quite shocking. In 1992, the four largest players had 41% market share, now they've got 71%. Computer and software stores, 26% market share for the four largest operators, 2007, 73%. So what does this mean? This means that, curiously, in a society that believes in competition, believes in the free market, the dominant players are getting more and more of that cake that you saw increasing. We can see this also in the gross profits of the 200 largest US corporations as a percentage of total gross profits. That's all profits that were declared in the economy. You can see increasing market concentration you see here a dip, and what I think is interesting is that is the liberalisation moves where people try to break open and introduce competition. You then see its reversal and its gradual rise again. And you see that not just in gross profits, but also in revenue. Again, massive rises, again the drops when genuine competitive uh, industries were opened up. But again, the rise. Why is this? Well, it's largely because we stopped enforcing competition law uh, in, again, in Europe and in America. And that's largely because we followed Chicago school competition law policy. And what they said is, 
The only measure for competition is low prices. And if we can deliver low prices, that will break monopolies, because monopolies can't deliver low prices. Oh, yes, they can. Let's go into Walmart. And, and precisely because increased market share allows you to charge less profit per item, you can actually squeeze out almost any other form of economic competition. And that's why the American high street, of which there are fewer and fewer, is now dominated by these big, big multiples. And what this means is your chance of starting a business, your chance of creating ownership and moving ahead and making a life for yourself that isn't dependent on wages that won't deliver and then force you to build up debt, is actually rapidly and aggressively decreasing. Now this also matters for the economy because it's small businesses that first take on workers and then lose them most rapidly. These are losses, employment losses, by the thousands for uh, different makeups of businesses. These lines are the corporates, these orange lines are the small businesses between 20 and up to 500. And it's the small businesses that are going to put on the jobs growth and tackle the current US recession. But you can see just that they've been hit by the recession the most and the corporates have the greater resilience. Unless we can create the conditions for them to grow and expand, we're not going to see a jobs-led recovery in the United States. Now again, what are the consequences of this? So let's go through it. Your wages won't deliver. You've got to put on loads of debt just to stay where you are. You can't start a business. You really can't get ahead. So what do you do? You turn to welfare. You turn to the state to guarantee your income and your standard of living. And you can see from 1983, just under 30% of US households were receiving some government benefit. And 30 years hence, it's now touching 50%. That's almost exclusively the result of allowing our private sector to become uncompetitive, to refusing to allow people a proper return for their wages or their stakes in life, and for letting market share become concentrated in the biggest players. All, by the way, under the guise of free market policies. Remember we're told entrepreneurship, ownership, liberty, what did we produce? Dependence, statism, welfareism. Remember how I said at the beginning, both policies were the same? I think we have ample evidence, indeed, that their consequences are. So what can we do? First of all, I think, as in all things, you have to acknowledge the problem. Both the, the current models of left and right have resulted in the same outcome. Both welfareism on the left and the monopoly capture of the market have encouraged bureaucracy, disempowerment, asset concentration, and have squeezed people out of economic agency, potency, and ownership. And the left has done it with the state, and the rice has done it with the market. So a society in which you have welfare, which makes you passive, unwell, and increasingly unable to operate the longer you're in it, 
works hand in hand with an economic sector, a private sector that's been captured by the big players. That's the problem. So what can we do? So I'm not naturally pessimistic and um, I don't want to be entirely depressed. Um, God, you sound a bit depressed, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I want to suggest to you that there are options. And that we can shift and change things and create a new settlement. One I think that's properly American, that genuinely gives us an open and free market and creates a society where people can get ahead. First of all, we have to remoralize the market. We have to be very clear that what we want from our market. For too long, we've accepted the Chicago School Libertarian account that actually isolate market from all other goods and it will deliver all goods. This is palpable nonsense. It won't because it actually isn't following a neutral interest, it's following a vested interest. How do we free it from that? Well, we pluralise the interest the market serves. How do we do that? We relocalise the economy. What does that mean? That means creating funding and asset structures that allow people to make a difference in their own community. One of the reasons that businesses and small businesses find it so difficult is because we don't even have the uh, financial architecture to give them the credit and the support that they need. And too many of our small businesses aren't even able to break through into public procurement. Too much of our government and our local procurement just once more goes with the dominant or oligarchical, I can't even say it, players. We have to recapitalize the poor, which increasingly now means the majority. We have to create new assets, new structures of ownership, so people have something to own. Part of that means recreating the model of what the state is. Instead of the state being something that just creates income dependency, we need to think of ways in which the state can, even through that dependency, capitalize its citizens. If you have a need, and if that need is long term, and if that is the subject of welfare entitlement, you should be able to capitalize those income streams. In Britain, you get a benefit called housing benefit where if you're unemployed, you get your rent paid. And some families are unemployed for 30, 40, 50 years because poverty is grinding and generational and you can't get ahead. I see no reason why we can't give those families a capital effect so they own their own home and, as a result, cost the state less and actually transform their outcomes. But we can do that for that. We can do it for prescriptions, we can do it for medical conditions, we can do it for any form of wealth that you might receive for your child. And if we can capitalize income by welfare streams, we can create a capital effect for those at the bottom of society. Finally, of course, we have to break open the market by mass and plural ownership. We have to enforce competition law and lower the barriers for market entry. At the moment, everything is written for the dominant players. Pretender qualifications exclude small and medium-sized enterprises. We've got to find new ways for bottom-up companies to actually enter the market and compete. And again, one of the reasons why America is in relative decline is because nobody's innovating anymore. And people aren't innovating because dominant companies are rent-seeking, because they make more money by not innovating, by leaving things as they are, 
because there are no market entrants to challenge them. And if we don't create new market entrants, we create a permanent rent-seeking economy, which is what we risk living in. So what, do we, what can we do, what have we tried to do in Britain, and what can we do in America? First of all, the primary key is getting people to associate, tackle the, the atomization and the, the individualism of our society that makes people so powerless and so poor by creating associations. And let's create associations about what most people want, ownership, business, economic security. How do we do that? Well, first of all, we change the operation of the state. If we make the state a subsidiary state, what that means is state action has to be as localised as possible. And why not make it as controlled as possible by those citizens? And why not make it controlled by local groups of citizens so they can control the budgets which the state spends on areas or sectors or types? Then we could use government expenditure as a way of starting businesses around which your problem then becomes your solution. Because your problem then becomes an asset that can change your outcome. Some more on this. Our first report from ResPublica UK was called The Ownership State. And in this I argue that actually what we should do is neutralise all public services, all state services should be taken over by their workers and run as a business that can contract out and yet perform the public services that everyone wants. Why? Because most public service workers are lowly paid, they're often women and they're often poorly skilled. And if we can create stakeholding, if we can create asset ownership in those companies, we can create ownership at the bottom of society. We can mutualise those public services so people actually have a stake other than wages and we can challenge monopoly provision by the state and we can break down the barriers to entry in those markets and in those areas. And shockingly and fabulously, these are called cooperatives, workers' cooperatives if you like, the current Conservative government is one of the greatest drivers forward of this and it's all about creating ownership at the bottom of society. Now what I think is interesting, you think, oh, employee ownership's a bit rubbish, won't really deliver, it's all a bit nonsense, a bit weak. Employee-owned companies have outcompeted the FTSE 100 index every year for the past 10 years by over 10%. Employee ownership is one of the great new drivers of productivity. Let me give you another example. In 2006, uh, for residential and adult care and children's care in the West Midlands. Samwell Community Caring Trust span out as a mutualised charity. 2009, they went back and did an audit. And they found that in-house public care for, for people who were still looked after by the local authority was £658 per person per week. In the new mutualised charity, it was £328 per person per week. So you think, oh, the employees must have been destroyed, the pensions removed, wages cut. Actually, the reverse was the case. Pensions were maintained and wages weren't cut. But sick days per year fell from 22 days per employee per year to 0.3 days. The percent spent on the front line rose from the low 60s to the mid 80s. Patients were happier, staff were happier. They even had a bonus system. This is part of the way in which we can revolutionise our public service delivery, 
creating ownership and opportunity. Some more reports from us, the Venture Society. Well, what can we do to start? Okay, that's for people already in jobs. What about for people who have problems? What can we do to create them, opportunities for them? Well, we argued that actually we need to create ways in which social enterprises, and social enterprises are non-profits, they give 50% of their income to the social good. And they're often started by people in marginalised or impoverished communities, dealing with anything from drug addiction, prisoner rehabilitation, whatever you care to name. We argued for a complete new infrastructure for supporting those people and localising capital funds in order to enable them to get started. But let, me, let me give you an example. Crime is a problem, I think. That's clear. One of the reasons that we have crime is when people go to prisons, they meet more criminals, and it gets easier and easier for them to commit crime, and harder and harder, that's cold coffee, that's not good, harder and harder to make a difference. Now in Britain, two years after you're released, within two years, 66% of the cohort that's released from prison will be reconvicted. No, that's not re-offend, that's reconvicted. 66%. Think of all the social and human costs associated from that. However, if they work with social enterprises, often faith groups, often religious groups, that uh, reoffending rate falls from 66% to, in some cases, 15%. It's Blue Sky, for instance, in London. Now, that saves the state an enormous amount of money. And social impact bonds are ways in which those social enterprises can go to the private sector and say, fund us for two years so that we deliver these outcomes, and the state agrees to pay for each level of reoffending avoided as a result of social enterprises. So you create a win-win amongst what is one of the more intractable problems of our society. There's other interesting ideas, and this is an American idea, the L3C company. And what that has done, I think it's passed in about seven states now, is it allows, normally if you have a charity, a charity can only loan money or give money away. What the L3C company structure allows charities to do is leverage charitable money. So they can buy out the risk curve in a new business and make it amenable for normal private sector capital to invest. So for the first time, charitable money can be leveraged in the way private sector money can. And all of this is because we don't need people to be poor. Even people who are poor have massive needs, spend massive amounts of money. But what they don't do is they don't move up their own supply chains. And we need to create the conditions for people who are disadvantaged, or whatever euphemism you want to use, to actually move up their own supply chains and take over public and private sector lines of supply. So people in social housing should be building their own houses on land, in places like Detroit, which they own as a result of the labour they put in. And that labour, they should learn off other people in the job and spread skills amongst the community. So at the end of building their own houses, they not only have an asset, they have a skill they can sell. And this has happened, and it happens in Europe, and indeed happens in America. Another of the ideas we came up with to really try and make a difference, this is our report by Bid Build, it's all available online, all free, 
is why not give people control, direct control over their own local budgets? Why have it go through a state where we know each layer of management bureaucracy loses you 20% of your frontline budget? So what we argue for is a community right to buy, so communities have a moratorium on publicly valuable assets, they can put together a business plan and buy that asset. They have a right to challenge, so when budgetary expenditure is being spent, when it's ineffective, and remember we spent billions on poverty and still have poverty, those communities will have the right to take over that budget line from the state, capture it for themselves and spend it to best effect creating, in effect, a capital injection that could create so many other possibilities. So we're arguing for the takeover of public assets by communities. We're also arguing for self-defined neighbourhoods. So under the localism bill, which this report influenced in the UK, <coughs> neighbourhoods would be able to self-define themselves, and in self-defining themselves, create their own local plans which people are obliged to abide by electing MERS, micro-budgets, etc. And this brokers all sorts of future possibilities from controlling local policing to uh, creating associations whereby you can take advantage of uh, new uh, buying tariffs for electricity. So the, the fundamental move and shift that we're trying to create here is the idea that the state disempowers and you can reverse take over the state for those communities and the options for those communities will be radically different. So, I better begin to wind up. It's nearly an hour, I'm terribly sorry. Um, it's the big society, I guess. Um, <laughs> the new agenda is as follows. First of all, we have to associate to create capital and skills, relationships and friendships. <laughs> In Italy, they have peer-to-peer -peer business lending because people have known each other for decades. In the US and the UK, we've never been able to create peer-to-peer -peer business lending. So small businesses can't get supported because we don't have the localised banking that we used to have. We've got to create new powers of grassroots governance so people, even if they don't have capital, can change the direction and ownership of any form of enterprise. But once our ideas go through and become law, they'll be able to control budgets. Relationships and social capital matter. So does ownership, capacity and competition. One of the interesting things in Europe where small businesses survive is they don't compete as individuals. That's fatal because as a small player you can't compete as an individual. What you can however do is compete as a whole supply chain. Whole supply chain competition is very successful in competing with transnationals because it enables each business in that supply chain to niche and to innovate. And businesses lend money across the whole supply chain and they ask the supply chain to innovate and they tell businesses within that chain what they need to do. And most small businesses can't do that because they don't know where the technological frontier is in their field. So I want to conclude. The ideology that we follow has been one ideology, and it's liberalism as first philosophy. I don't mind liberalism as third philosophy or fourth philosophy, that's fine. But you can't have liberalism as first philosophy. Because if you do, you won't have common norms, 
You won't have common codes. You will simply be following either collectivism or individualism. And that will crush you and that will impoverish you. The current mode of politics has failed. It's shifting and both Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party are signs and true signs and indicators of that. What we need in the new politics will be based around a reciprocal society, a civil economy and a moral outcome. The principles, I think, for the type of society we need is one of mass prosperity. We need to ask, we can do that in the Q&A, what are the conditions for a new mass prosperity. We need to create new forms of ownership, new forms of collaboration, new forms of capacity. One of the reasons why America is falling behind is your elite are still elite, they're still, they're still very good, but your median skill levels are very poor, especially considered internationally. And if your median skill levels of a population are poor, businesses won't locate in your area or your country. And we need a government that empowers states and localities to solve public problems. So it needs subsidiarity as its first principle of governance. And finally, we need a society that doesn't invest in speculative residential property, but invests in local businesses and each other. We need civic investment, social involvement. Because unless we create peer-to-peer -peer relationships, unless we create new ways of allowing excellence to to move and permeate in our society. What is actually happening in the US and the UK is we're creating societies that is increasingly difficult to change your life outcomes. Societies where your zip code is the best indicator of your outcome. So, to conclude, we desperately need an alternative. The current situation, the current offering is profoundly broken. I think we've outlined the conditions for a new settlement. Thank you.